Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Anna Feigenbaum, where I ask her, what's the deal with tear gas? Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. I am so excited for this week's episode. Welcome to the show, Anna Feigenbaum, who is an associate professor of communication and digital media at Bournemouth University in the southwest of England. She is the author of Tear Gas, From the Battlefields of World War I to the Streets of Today, published by Verso. Welcome, Anna. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Do you watch figure skating at all? Are you like familiar with figure skating terms? Uh, some of them. Well, there's this thing that we call a double footed landing. Like you don't want to double foot your landing. You want like a nice, clean single foot landing. Okay. So did I single foot landing your last name and the name of your university? You did, but I just got promoted. So it's actually Professor Anna Fagenbaum now. Yes, prof. Professor, oh, yes, you better, Professor Anna Feigenbaum. Yes, I have not had a correction more exciting than that all day. I love that for you. Congratulations. Yes. How does it feel to like just be a full-blown professor now? It feels good. It's like one of those things where like I wasn't in a rush to get there. And I was like, it won't be any different. And then it was like immediately totally different. And it felt like the weight of lots of expectations got lifted off of me. Okay, love that. So hard right you guys we're diving into our subject matter now so last year 2020 lots of protests this is where the the hint of curiosity first was born i'm like what is this tear gas where's it come from is it is it literally gas what is this shit okay so there's like a few different types of tear gas we call it tear gas because one of the main things it does is it makes the eyes water um there's kind of two main strands of it one are thought of as the irritants and one are the inflammatories in practice they both hurt and they both do almost exactly the same bad things to your body but um in terms of the compositions the ones that we normally have i'm just going to give you the abbreviations because the real names are like super long and i would have to read them awkwardly off the screen um so the abbreviations are CN and CS, and those are the irritant ones. And then you have the inflammatory ones, which are normally called pepper sprays, and those are OC or something called PAVA, which is a synthetic rather than naturally derived. You could spend a really an hour that would probably be quite boring, like just talking about the different types of tear gas. But at the end of the day, um, neither are gases. They are actually a liquid, which is quite interesting. I think. And that's why they can be uh, fired on people in so many different ways. So whether it's like through a hose or through um, uh, you know, a gun or inside of a kind of capsule that looks like a giant bullet. So the reason that there's all of this variety is actually because this is uh, kind of a, a liquid or a, a powder. Like there's all these different ways that you can disperse or dispense it. Whoa, that's a lot. So the stuff that I saw in the protest last year, those were like in canisters. Do you remember the big debate of like, we didn't tear gas them, we pepper sprayed them uh, with these like pepper balls. So that's like the same kind of things that you would get if you went paintballing with your friends, but they're filled instead with uh, toxic chemicals from a paintball manufacturing company that was like, oh, here's a new nifty idea of what we can do with our paintball things. Then that company sells like all different kinds of these chemicals. Like it could be like have some CS with a bit of OC in it. Oh, so the reason why that's major is because if it's like got CS with a little bit of OC, that's like a little bit of the irritant and a little bit of the inflammatory. They're like, we can give you a little bit of mixed bag of all the different ones. 
Yeah. And it's like all bespoke for the buyer. So like the orderer can be like, oh, I would like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But it also makes it really kind of silly when the news gets into this, like, oh, it was this and not that. Like at the end of the day, like they are all toxic chemicals that are being fired at people. And so the consistency, like it's literal makeup, you said is a, a liquid. So they can, so you can just have a tank of it and fire it through a hose. Yes. Yes. A thing you see a lot in the U.S. is those like backpacks that look like they have fire extinguishers on them and then they have like a hose spray or if you remember back to like the uc davis like the cop that became a meme because he just like groups pepper sprayed someone in a row yes yeah so like that's one of those like big spray tanks uh that like can can fire at lots of people at once so those things are, are extra dangerous so those like canister ones that emit what looks like gas. Is there like some sort of like white gas that comes out of some of those canisters? Yeah. So there's like a smoke that comes out um, and yeah. you could actually choose like your color, like more of a smoke product marketing. You can choose like your color smoke. Sometimes it is a mix. Like sometimes a smoke grenade will be thrown and then um, and the irritant will be thrown or, and it, it, it depends. Uh, but yeah, a lot of times they're mixed into the same canister. And the part of the reason for that that smoke is to is to hide or to cover what is happening. Oh, so you could do like a smoke one to be like maybe they'll think that this is the pepper spray. So it's just like very like camouflage like yeah. tactic. Yeah, yeah. So I have never been pepper sprayed, maced, tear gassed. Like I've not been one of the people who have had this happen to them. So you're in a group of people. Someone disperses this. What does it smell like? What is it? What's the, what's the, what do people say that it's like? Um, I mean, people usually describe it as feeling like you're going to die. You're going to suffocate. It is intentionally designed to cause so much fear and uh, perceived harm that the, that you just want to escape or to get away from what they used to actually call the site of torment. So the, the old marketing, and we might get into this later, but like when you look at the old school marketing, there's like none of this, like less lethal humanitarian rhetoric that we have today. It's just like run from the irresistible blast of screaming, tormenting poison, you know? And so that is, I think much closer to the sensory experience of what it is like to, to receive um, tear gassing. It, causes uh choking it causes um so that this kind of crying thing is like the least of it it's like your eyes water but then you're choking your nose is running uh for some people it gives them really bad intestinal problems uh they're looking now at connections between various kinds of like menstruation problems and uh being tear gassed and then it also especially in a crowd causes like stampeding and running which then creates more psychological as well as physical kind of uh sense of of, of torment and, and worry. If a government is using this shit to tear gas you in the first place, like they're used, they're the ones disseminating it. How many studies are we really going to have about what it does to people? Cause like, you know, I feel like yeah. there's like, there are like long-term health risks associated with tear gas that we don't hear about. What are some of the long-term health risks and side effects of being exposed to tear gas? Yeah, so you're you're completely right that most of the big studies and the access to money to even fund these big studies is held by the military so and, and government. So um we the only times that 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 
there's been a kind of safety clearance for tear gas in the long term. It's come from one of these studies, and they're also quite old now, these studies, like we're talking about kind of like 50s, 60s, 70s is when the bulk of this research was done. And also a lot of the research that's been done is done on animals and the ways that those studies get translated to the human body is like super questionable. Like I've spent a lot of time uh, in archives reading about killing animals with tear gases as you do um and what that goes like what goes into the press release of like how the study has like total clearance for humans but then you're actually looking at the study and you're like what about all these monkeys that died so are you saying that in like the 50s 60s and 70s and a lot of these studies were being done tear gas was actually used and then it actually killed the animals that it was being tested on. Yeah. So there are animals. So, so in large doses. So the way that they call tear gas safe is all, all based on this kind of dosage. I know I realize I'm like sidetracking from the long-term health effects, but it's kind of like no, an it's important, important thing to understand. Yeah. yeah. So basically in the same way that like with a, um, a bottle of, I always forget that like the British names for these things is different than the American. Mm. So um, with like a bottle, Advil. Um, if you have like a hundred pills, like that's too much of a dose and could be dangerous. Whereas like two, two pills is good. And if you had four or five, it would probably be okay, but not advised. So that's, they use this kind of drug regulation or scale to, to understand whether or not tear gas um, are, are lethal. So they study it by giving really huge amounts of doses mm. and then seeing what happens. Like, do you develop this? Do you die? Do you get these kinds of... So that's like the bulk of the studies that have been done. Um, and that's where I would say we have a lot of questionable science that is military run and not checked by any kind of um, individual body and also outdated science. So science that was clinical experiments that were done decades ago that often haven't been updated, but are still cited um, as if they are contemporary. The only way to really study the long-term effects is through something that's more uh, epidemiological. So long-term over the course of time with the same people, which is a really hard hard kind of study to do in whether you're the government or you're, you know, a group of scientists at a university. But it's incredibly difficult to get research money to study military weapons, like not surprisingly. So most of the data that we have, which is very little, that's on the long term, is is housed as well by um, by the military. There are some interesting studies on like people who have worked in factories that produce uh, tear gas and like we've seen a lot of long term effects um, in people there. And so things that you would imagine that are linked to resp the, the short term respiratory are those longer term respiratory. Um, so there and this this is all sort of like needs further investigation. But there's links to things like asthmatic conditions. We know it's really dangerous for people with epilepsy. We know it's really harmful for pregnancy. Um, we know that uh, that there are um, basically any any kind of pre-existing respiratory condition that you have, like you do not want to be tear gassed. Um, and there have been studies into whether or not it's carcinogenic. And I would say that goes in the kind of like probably needs more research, sketchy science of the past category when I've looked at those studies. So does that mean that like some of these like widely accepted like medical like spectrums of like, oh, tear gas is like air quote safe in these doses if you're tear gassing like, you know, just a massive amount of people um, and you're getting this information from like a military they knows it in the 50s, 60s, 70s or whatever. If you're someone who has if you're like a survivor, if you're a cancer survivor, if you have asthma, if you have a compromised immune system, 
perhaps these doses that are considered normal for some people actually can be like really, truly dangerous for certain people to be exposed to in the long term. Exactly, exactly. And in the short term. And that that is something that is openly admitted in something called this Hemsworth Report from, from Northern Ireland in the late 70s. That's kind of the continues to be the standard uh, that's turned to today even. Um, and and that was openly discussed in the findings for that. But it, you never see that kind of cited or quoted because there's this kind of able-bodied assumption. And most of the military studies are done on men in the military. So people in their physical prime in their young 20s. So a lot of the data that we have doesn't include or has not studied any kind of uh, body other than that very normative kind of white male in good shape in his young 20s. What do we know about like anyone who's like lost their lives or like their life has been forever changed due to tear gas exposure? Yeah, so there are um, hundreds of of incidences of of deaths over the course of tear gas. The data is completely scattered because there's no systematic way of of collecting it. And there's no duty to report for police officers uh, when they fire less lethal weapons. Yeah. Wow. Let's fucking say those three sentences again if that did not send shivers up your spine you are not listening to this podcast or like reading it through the transcript well enough let's say that one more time so in the course of history like modern history i'm assuming we have hundreds of cases of like assumed tear gas deaths or like tear gas deaths um I would say we have tear gas deaths. So then, there, then there's a, then there's dozens more, hundreds more of assumed ones. I mean, tear gas leading to or being part of a situation that becomes deadly or um, with a long term or life threatening kind of uh, illness is going to be even even larger of a number. Wow! So literally, hundreds of deaths direct like directly contributed to tear gas exposure, and law enforcement like literally doesn't have a duty to report. Is that just like a U.S. thing, or is that like literally everywhere? There's there tends to not be duties to report for less lethal weapon risk. And part of that, and you know, in their explanation is that these are dispersal weapons. So like I fire it, it hits 100, 200, 1,000 people in the crowd. How would we track back to my canister the amount of gas that that one person received in the crowd, right? So that it's an incredibly difficult and challenging thing Two monitors. So like a bullet has a serial number. It matches to the gun. You find the bullet, you know, who the bullet hit. You can do that tracking. So it's political if you're not tracking a bullet. With tear gas, it's complicated because it's political, but it's also uh, a kind of technical challenge. Um, so you would have to rethink the entire way that, and this is what people are trying to do right now, like rethink the entire way that this is regulated and monitored and used. Um, but we know that tear gas is... Um, a cause for death in cases where there's suffocation in enclosed spaces. I was going to ask you, so what would like, what would like, a, um, what, what, like, what would a medical examiner or like a doctor rule the cause of death if it was exposure to tear gas, like suffocation or like yeah, just so organ failure? Usually, yeah, exactly. That's the problem. So it's like, it, it, it's like stuff. It's, and, and it, it's still like anyone who knows anything about tear gas would then read that report and know that tear gas was the cause of death. But 
in the way that we record death, it would still be complicated and it would still be seen as part of like a chain because it could still be that a different body wouldn't have died. Right. And in some cases, that's just not true. Like there's some terrible incidences where um, there's one where like the back of a truck got tear gas put into it. And so everybody that was transporting prisoners and everybody who was inside died. That was in Egypt. Uh, Everybody would die. So like in that kind of case, probably anybody who was in that truck would have died. But there are these other incidences, especially when they happen in prisons or in detention centers or places where people already are stripped of a lot of rights and voice where, you know, they're only People that that were witnesses are other guards and people that work in the place. And then someone dies from exposure and then they tend to blame, you know, oh, well, this person had this pre-existing condition and that's why, you know, and we see it reported in some of the same way that we see COVID deaths reported, right? Respiratory um, death is a very complicated thing in the way that we record death to, to, to know the cause of. And so there ends up being a lot of this language around like bodies that aren't fit enough to, to take it. Wow. This is one of those episodes where I thought I was going to have to pretend like I didn't know certain things, but then I, but then I actually really didn't know certain things. And then it actually does get, wow, queen. Thank God. Well, sometimes I just make jokes at things because if I didn't make jokes, I would just be too sad. And so I guess it just also goes back to like the benefit brow brush. Like your brows look so amazing. And it's just nice to like have such devastating information delivered by someone whose brow game is unparalleled. Okay. Like, it would be worse if, like, your brows didn't look so fucking good. Like, your brows look amazing, okay? So just, Thank I'm you. saying it's it. It's also, I, yeah, I wear pink a lot when I, like, get interviewed, like, when it's on video. Because I'm like, I'm going to deliver this really heartbreaking news to you. But look, I'm wearing, like, a pink shirt and some nice earrings. So, like, yeah, your hoops. It's the hoops, It's not quite too. as bad. Like, maybe, you know, but it is really bad. It's really bad. But we also want to be able to listen to it and to think about it and then to, like, when we see it on the news or like our friend dismisses it to like be able to be like knowledge. No, that's not the whole story. It sounds like widespread issue, like really worldwide. Like there's tear gas, like, you know, Egypt, U.S., like all over, probably like anywhere where there's like law enforcement, which I think is like everywhere, right? But in order for us to really understand now, I feel like we probably need to go back to its origins, like the history of tear gas. Um, so what is the origin story? Like who developed it? Where and when? For what purpose? If you wanted to play a game, I could try to test my history knowledge of what I'm pretty sure I remember from seventh grade. Okay, should we start with um, who first deployed it in what war? Someone in World War One. Tear gas was actually started by the French. Uh, <sighs> were the first to use it in the war. The French? Who knew? <laughs> yeah. So the French, and apparently the French, and if if you happen to have any like French speaking archivists that are your listeners, I would love for someone to go to the French police archives and find out what is true about this. But apparently uh, the French police were like having a little dabble in the tear gas in the early 1900s because they got really tired of all of their protesters hiding behind barricades that they couldn't get them out of. Um, And so this is what we think was going on is that the police were like having a little test, a little play. And then World War One started and they were like, oh, maybe this would be useful to get people out of trenches because trench warfare meant that people were, uh, you know, hiding from each other to not 
die. And they, in order to make advancements in the war, you had to kill the other side. So you had to get people out of the trenches. And so they used tear gas, at least this was in theory, uh, to get people out of the trenches so that they could either fire at them or put the worst gases on them. It didn't, the early versions didn't work very well. And apparently the, what the phenomenon that's called blowback. So when you get it back in your face uh, was really common. And, uh, but then after the war ended, it became refined and made into a commercial product. So let me get this straight. The origin story of tear gas was to uh, disperse protesters Uh, And then it was to get soldiers out of barricades so that then they could murder them with other gases uh, where they were already on a battlefield, like exposed to really deadly stuff anyway. But the tear gas was so bad that it would even get them out of those hiding spots to kill them of other stuff. Yeah. And it would cause that kind of psychological trauma and disorientation, which is really useful if you're trying to harm people. Right. And this is where I think we really have to you know, think about what it means to take a military weapon and then bring it on onto the streets. And, you know, there's I don't know how much you want to get into the whole details of like the crazy man who was like in charge of doing that in the U.S. Oh, but fuck yeah, I do. Okay. I want to get I want to get I want to go. I Yes. And I so I'm guessing. So that's World War One. Then yeah. afterwards, is that one crazy fucking U.S. man? When yeah. who's that guy? What what's so his story? His name is Amos Fries. Though some people say Amos Freeze, um, unknown. Again, any listeners with expertise in 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 surnames, uh, last names, last names. I keep doing this British American thing. Um, anyway, so General Amos Fries is a veteran of the war. He's very decorated. Uh, he did very well in his like military academy. He was very did very well in the military. And when he got out, he uh, was p- kind of started rallying some other people, including lawyers and publicists and they really wanted to kind of maintain the chemical warfare service so like the all the kind of chemistry that was going into these military weapons um so in the u.s 10 percent of all chemists were enlisted into the first world war so just to get a sense of like the scale of the amount of chemistry that was in in the war so and this is true for other countries it's true for germany and this is true for france as well so there's like all this chemical investment that's been put in so after the war people were like i don't want to lose my job, my innovation. Uh, I'm sure money was involved. So General Amos Fries becomes the head of the Chemical Warfare Service and him and his buddies, the publicists and the lawyers, start basically like a massive lobbying campaign um, to get this, uh, not just tear gas, but tear gas largely among it, to become what they called peacetime weapons, so peacetime goods. Um, And they... This is like also like the early 1920s. So this is like the birth of PR more broadly. So we're starting to see lots of like really fancy um, advertising and uh, doing these kinds of big extravagant demos and things for products. And so he basically used like cutting edge PR techniques to uh, market tear gas. So he would like call up a police department and be like, we have this great new stuff. Uh, we would love to show it to you. And they would bring tear gas to like 200 police officers in a field and they would get journalists to come and photograph it and watch it. And they would do like a massive demonstration. You know, I sometimes call it like a fashion week style kind of uh, tactics that they would use, like come see our new collection. Um, And then they would, they would fire the police and then they would have all these quotes in the newspapers that were like, Oh my God, this stuff is so awful. Like I can't wait to use it against, you know, protesters. So when you first started describing this, I wrote down 
militarization of the police force question mark. So was this one of the first times that we see in U.S. history of taking wartime stuff and then seeing like, oh, how can we repurpose this for like domestic use when we're not at war? I'd say it's like part of the modern move to do that because we, the modernization of war happens at this time, but the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, like with industrialization and the rise of chemistry in general. Um, so there's, I'm sure you can find like examples of the militarization of police, like way going like way back to like the beginning of, of policing. But um, I think what's important about that period is that there's this whole like rhetoric of like science as a civilizing force that's happening. And so that enables some of these arguments around these kinds of like modern weapons that are like better than the old, you know, bat. And like one of the ads was like, who needs a bow and arrow when you have tear gas? Like, I don't know what police department was using bows and arrows, but like this, this was this kind of modern science rhetoric that was used um, for this shift. And I think the other thing that I have to say about that is that often technologies go back and forth between the police and the military. So this is tear gas is actually like a police technology that becomes a war technology that becomes a police technology. Yes, because it was the French police. Yeah, the French police. Then they give it to the French military. Then it goes back to the police when the war is over. Yeah, but like without the money and the scientific power of the military, a lot of these kinds of smaller scale uh, developments or ideas wouldn't be possible. So I think like the big thing is still the militarization. The press are coming to these fields in the U.S. in the 20s and 30s and seeing this tear gas. Oh, it's so scary. Oh, we're so powerful. This is like really furious because now we can like disperse unwanted people. Like, what? how was this rationale received? Like, was anyone like, I don't know about that? Or like, what is a more... I mean, or is the real story behind that just that like these chemists and these industries wanted to... They saw an opening to make money. So they were like let's create an industry out of this. Yeah. I think a lot of it is profit motivated. I mean, you had uh, kind of veteran buddies of the general I must surprised uh, from the war who were the founders of the very first American tear gas companies. And they um, started their products with donated samples from the military um, that they were like testing at the commercial facilities, but then they used that to develop the products. So they created a demand, right? They went to these police departments. They were like, hey, we have the shiny new product. You need this. And then they produced it through companies that they were tied to, right? So all of the money is coming right back into that same system. Um, and that is a really like basic, like when you when you look at the history of it, it's just like a like capitalism 101. Like it's just this really basic kind of roadmap to how you make money with a new product. Are those original American tear gas companies still in existence today? So some of them have like they've morphed into other companies and like they've been bought by other companies. But yeah, so we still have um, you can still and you actually still sometimes see um, canisters from Fed Lab, Federal Lab Laboratories, which is one of these early ones. Um, but the there's very few. So tear gas is often a family business if it's not owned by the military. And so they're um, often these companies have been in some form of another, like around since the beginning of of time. Other times it's like historical weapons companies that then like got into the tear gas market. Are any of these hoes like fucking like 
goddamn Whole Foods or something? Or like, or like, are we all unwittingly going to some place that's also owned by FedLab? Is there anyone who we need to fucking boycott? Because we shouldn't be helping people that are making goddamn tear gas. Yeah. So there's been a lot of looking into some of these companies. And the one that got the most um, press coverage, especially of late, is a guy named Warren Canders, because he also sat on the board of the Whitney Museum of Art. And he owns all kinds of things. Um including he's uh, including some climbing equipment, which is another boycott that we can get around to. But um, a lot of there's different kinds of investors in this. And a lot of times they're like, it's like that really messy capitalism where it's like, and then this holding company, which owns like 30 subsidiaries that you can't trace, you know, is, is also, there's a lot of dirty money in it. There's a lot of relationships between you know, police departments and these kinds of weapons producers. So I guess the reason why I point that out is, is that like that, I mean, I guess anything is possible, but you would imagine that that would take a while to track and unwind because these relationships have gone back for like a literal hundred years now where this like supply chain and this demand and where someone's getting richer, you know, so people don't give up their money without a fight is the point. No, and the connections, like the only reason that I was able to tease out some of these connections from the 20s and 30s is because I literally sat in archives for hours reading handwritten letters that were written back and forth between these people and then like cross-checking that with various other archival documents and then doing all that kind of like biographical digging into like who these people were, including having to go into their personal archives, like, you know, and getting some librarian somewhere to like send me files on like... so. Today, some of that's digital and it's a little bit easier to do. But if even to find these kinds of connections today requires deep, deep investigation and lots of things that are that are hidden, you know, lots of freedom of information requests, like people want to hide their trails of money. Right. So do you think there's anything else that we missed about like a more full bodied explanation of how tear gas got from French police to battlefields back to police being so wide, widespread and, and ultimately to protests. Yeah. So like that, the kind of general misprize chemical warfare service is kind of the American side of the story. But of course, America is a big empire and it likes to um, export its tactics as well as its products. Uh, and so the other, I think, really important piece of the story is that Tear gas was being used right in the new world, but it was also being used as parts of the uh, colonization efforts um, of the older empire. So we see like the fr- French tear gases being used in French colonies and then British tear gas being used in the British colonies. Um, and so the other story that I kind of traced in the archives was how, so Britain was a lot slower to accept the use of tear gas. And so why was Britain hesitant? And then like what eventually made them decide that it was um, important for helping them to maintain colonial rule. And so that like takes you through the kind of story of like the rise of independence movements in uh, some of their African colonies and particularly in India and the the way that there's these negotiations going back and forth where people are like, oh, in the US and in South Africa, like they're doing a great job with this tear gas stuff. Like, why aren't we using tear gas? We are having all these uprisings that we need to put down and we can't just shoot people because that looks bad. So like, what can why can't we get in on this tear gas? Um, and so I think that part of the story is also really important because when you 
think like, okay, who is tear gas used against? It's protesters and people uh, fighting, you know, for their independence from colonial rule. And so the interests usually in using tear gas are deeply tied also to that kind of government and financial power. Mm, mm, In your professional opinion, how fucked are we? Like, are we super fucked, mildly fucked? Will we ever get, like, tear gas un- inextricably tied to, like, all of, like, this fucking law enforcement? Is there anyone else who can suss out who makes it so that we can, like, boycott them? Because, like, what if accidentally, like, I don't know, like, some really cute shoe company that we like is also making tear gas or something? Yeah, so you can definitely try to tra- trace um, any of these companies and like what else they're they're linked to. Um, so there are other major suppliers in the U.S. Um, there's something called Saber Red, which is more for pepper spray. Um, then there is Combined Systems Inc. That's like the other really big one. And then of course the Warren Candor's one is Safari Land. Um, Warren Candor's keeps saying that he's not going to be part of Safari Land anymore, but apparently there's been little movement on that. So it's questionable whether that's like just a PR stunt um, or whether that's he's really leaving. There's a really big company in Brazil called Condor Non-Lethal Technologies that does a lot of the exports to um, South America where, where there's a lot of really horrendous uses of tear gas. Um, and then there's a Chinese company, that one's run by, by the Chinese government, um, Norinco. And then there are some like big companies in France that use uh, their own kind of versions of weapons that are also really dangerous. And I think also importantly, like all of these tear gas suppliers, almost all of these tear gas suppliers are also make um, rubber bullets and other kinds of projectiles that are also really dangerous. So it's not, it's not like it's just tear gas. It's like all of these technologies that are used primarily against protesters um, are made by these same companies. And is it law enforcement who is the primary purchaser of these? Yeah, you have a, you have some supply that goes to the to military because in certain kinds of peacekeeping kind of operations, there's there's like less lethals do get used, but that's really fuzzy and and that like the details of that would be like a whole nother show. But um, at the main main purchasers are police. Or in prisons are like another smaller, just mm. less of it. Um, but yeah, and a lot of it is subject to like export regulation and like there's some restrictions on trade, but for domestic purchasing, it's very light touch the way the regulation is. And even in the international there, it's just not that well regulated as a product. Sometimes also like if you're ordering, say the chemical, but not the actual like weapon like the device then that gets listed as a different kind of like export import because it's a chemical and not not the whole weapon system so there's like all of these ways around the kind of regulation that you would need if you were selling missiles right so it it's it falls in this kind of gray zone sometimes these these products are even listed under trade categories for things like the same things as like computer equipment when you're thinking about like non-lethal like we saw so many injuries last year and i'm sure this year but especially last year um of rubber bullets blinding folks you know causing permanent long-term damage to people um also with tear gas i think another thing that's just coming up for me to really drive through to folks is that if one of these companies 
let's say the guy on the fucking factory floor that day that like is measuring the amount that gets put into each little canister. Maybe he had diarrhea. Maybe he was like running to the fucking bathroom every 20 minutes. So if one of these companies creates like a day or two's worth of tear gas, that's like way outside of the limit that like should make it like non-lethal or whatever. And then those get disseminated to police. Then police use them. They deploy it and folks end up getting exposed to it and have worse damage or potentially like, or, you know, killed what, Ever, there's no reporting for this because the tear gas is like so widespread as you were saying like you can't if you're if you use it on 2,000 people at a protest or 500 people at a protest there's nothing to really regulate all the time that all of this stuff is like in fact safe so really that whole idea that it's non-lethal like isn't really fully true do you think I'm am I saying that right or no yeah I think like the like, I don't know how much of, of the, of the issues we have would be like manufacturing issues. I think the way that excessive use happens is either because more canisters are fired than should be within mm. like safe parameters. So like if the safety measure is based on one canister for per 500 people and you fire 50 canisters at them in five minutes, which is the kind of stuff we see happen, you are all of a sudden going from what would be considered a safe dose, which all with all those other problems that still come with the idea of a safe dose to like a definitely excessive dose. Like if you're like supposed to give you two pills and I shove a whole bottle of pills down your mouth, like that is not safe. So it's user error. And that's the sort of thing that's happening so often. But the thing that rings true with that to the first analogy is that like, if they, if the police fire 50 canisters and the protesters can't prove that there was 50, like the police are like, what? Show me where the 50 were. We fired two. Bye. Like there's just not a lot of transparency for excessive force. So there's no, and that, that has to do with, again, like that idea that they don't really like have to like record or calculate or report right. back on like the number of them used. And then we don't have any kind of like tracing system that we do for other weapons. The other thing that happens is especially in these um, when again, like, because you can order this stuff, like just in chemical vats, and then you can like fill up your own weapons. So with like the hoses and the sprays and all this, like the amount that's being sprayed or used or put into the device. So whether that's like, not necessarily that's not necessarily happening like on the lab, the manufacturer floor but it could be happening right. in, in the police department some you know somewhere else where someone doesn't necessarily know or care about the safety protocol of how much they should be using so that's the other way that we end up with like really strong or too potent um, uses you also have things like expired canisters being used canisters where like their origin of them is a bit questionable so just like general lack of regulation um, will lead to these kinds of things and then the other thing that we haven't talked about that the rubber bullets when we think of is like the other way that people get really injured is when they get hit with the actual like shells or casings um, of the of the canisters or or the grenades that these are fired mm. in in which case that's kind of like being hit with a rubber bullet a because bullet. yeah it's coming out of the same gun that you would fire um like a rubber bullet out of um which also shouldn't be called a rubber bullet because they're usually like metal inside with a, like a, a very light rubber coating on the outside so who sets the standards for how tear gas is meant to be used in like a just in a law enforcement capacity so uh, historically a lot of the uh use guidance so like riot control manuals come from the military um they were also written like originally in the kind of uh 
sort of post-World War II and then a little bit later, um, kind of moving into the sort of 68 uprising time was a lot, was a time for a lot of rethinking riot control. Uh, and so literally military tactics being translated into domestic police uh, use in the same way that the weapons uh, were transferred back and forth. Um, and sometimes police will have their own kind of protocols. If you look at them, they look very similar to what's derived from these big kind of military manuals for domestic situations. Um, and then sometimes the weapons manufacturers also run trainings and have their own training program. Uh, there are many problems with that, as you can imagine. Um, so, it, I mean, this is just like a, an anecdote, but for example, like the safety protocol says that you should never fire like a canister, whether whatever is in it, whether it's tear gas or um, bullets at someone's um, like chest area um, or like at their, at their head, like you, there's a places to avoid. And when I, one of the other things I did for this project was go to arms fairs and on the marketing stand for one of these major suppliers was a video of them literally shooting protesters in all of the places that their own safety protocol will say is not, you're not supposed to do. And it's like, okay, well, if you're showing training videos of things that you know are unsafe and that's like your training material and you're advertising this openly, like there's clearly a lack of regulation and oversight in, in this transfer of, of knowledge that's supposed to like keep people safe. And we saw tons of injuries from these non-lethal weapons at protests all over the place last year. Um, but do, is there any like <clears throat> times with tear gas specifically in the U S where we see like a police department went completely against safety guidelines and people got really sick or lost their lives or there was like a huge stampede issue. Like, is was there anything like, you know, like the riot of XYZ where tear gas was used and it was like a particularly brutal use. Yeah. I mean, the, the, in the, in the 2020 protests, like there's that expose of like a hundred different locations in which excessive force was used um, with, with these kinds of weapons. Um, so one example that sticks out in my mind is when it was used on the, on the highway, I think it was in Philadelphia. Um, and they, so the police fired a bunch of tear gas, some people that were literally in an enclosed space, like it was a giant like hill up to a wall and there was no way to get out of it. And that is completely against protocol. Like, again, there, if they, if that department owns a safety training guideline, that that is definitely outlawed in the safety training. Um, so anytime that you're in a confined space, you're going to make the use of, of tear gas a, lo a lot more dangerous because of the quantity, like the dosage is in the smaller space, but also because of the stampeding and the trampling that can happen. Um, so it's like, we're not short on recorded incidences. There's also a fantastic project from Amnesty International, which is like, um, if you go, if you just like Google Amnesty International tear gas, you'll see it. And it is a really like interactive with all these videos of over 500 incidences that have happened and like what makes them excessive force. And it goes through all the things that make tear gas more dangerous. Um, so that is a good kind of um, starting place if you want to look into this more. So what rights do protesters have to contest tear gas use against them? I'm sure it goes by country to country. So just like in the U.S., for instance. So 
if you can prove excessive use of force, like a lot of lawsuits are won against police departments, uh, you know, many years, <laughs> much time and resource and money after the fact, um, that often civil suits are won. So a lot of times also out of uh, settlements are made. So um, if you got hit by a projectile or you can actually prove that it was definitely a, like a misuse that that injured you, often people will win settlements um, for, for that. But it tends to be case by case. And what that means is that there's not a lot of precedent that gets set. And so it's been quite hard to build sort of larger um, legislation. And this is true across across countries. Um, but I think this and what you were saying of like, how do we think about the future? Like what is different now than any other moment from what I have studied um, is that we are seeing since 2020, we are seeing um, states and municipalities and even on the federal level in the U.S., people try to put um, either bans or restraints um, illegally into the police use of tear gas and some of them some of these are winning and some of them are contested but like this is the first time we've seen any kind of legislative change at that level um so i think we actually are at a pivotal moment for um how we think about um the right and this is more more broadly true of policing but like how we think about excessive force how we think about what the point of police are what their job is what kind of rights protesters as well as um you know just civilians who are heavily policed you know what kinds of rights do they have so i think we are in a very pivotal moment for that um which which i think is promising yeah. So is there anything that protesters could do if you think that you could be in a position where you could find yourself exposed to tear gas? This is a twofold question. Is there anything that you could potentially bring with you to like measure the amount of tear gas or measure like if you were able to get it on video, like, bitch, this tab, when you put it up in this air, honey, if it turns purple, that means there's like 100 million parts per square inch or something. Could you do like some fucking fierce field test like out in the field? And could we make them like more affordable for people so that we can just take it and be like, you motherfuckers, this is like 80 times the legal dose or something. I love no. that. No, I love that. And we, you know, when, when when you get a bunch of tear gas researchers in a room together, this is like what we try and brainstorm is like, how would you actually do this through scientific study? You know, And so, yeah, you would basically want to use the kinds of ways that we do citizen science on like air pollution or water pollution. You would you'd basically want to do that. Like you would have to basically, I don't like, I don't know what the right scientific apparatus is. So like definitely ask somebody else that. But basically the idea of like you you like carry your like plastic because you don't want to get hurt you know test tube with you and then you like, like try to like capture the sample something i do know that you can do and one of the projects that we run is called riot id and it's got a website called riotid.com and that has guides for how you identify uh, various kinds of less lethal weapons so the different kinds of canisters the different kinds of explosions the different kinds of things that happen so and we talk through how you can safely photo document those materials Ooh. yeah and there's a great group that I promised that I would give a shout out to called the Chemical Weapons Research Consortium. And they're doing a lot of this actively now. They're based out of Portland, Oregon, but they've got people all over the place. Um, and so they have been doing a lot of this kind of um, weapons IDing on the ground and like thinking about ways that we um, create kind of shared, shared knowledge on that side. Um, 
So that's something that like, you know, you've got your camera anyway. So like, let's say, and you have to make sure that the conditions are safe for you to do this. Cause like you leave, like if you're being tear gas, like you don't want to get more hurt, like don't walk towards like a smoking grenade like that's really unsafe i know people do it but like as an as an expert like i i have to i have to say do not do not touch it it's more of like if you're around there it's more of like if you're there and it gets like if it's about to deploy get a picture and then get the fuck out like you have like a few seconds to act more no like like definitely leave like if it hasn't gone off yet definitely leave but like in there are situations where either you're further enough away or it's after it's happened and then you can go back and like if you're gonna photo document like so you would try to find the casings after it's over and be like they deployed 20 here or whatever yes yes so it did the casings the architectural surroundings that you're in so like do one of those like panorama shots like all around like so like this is what i would do i would take the camera i would do kind of not too close because you can always zoom in later but do your shots of the actual canisters in the place they are do a zoomed out shot of the context of that place and then do a panorama of the space around you um likewise if you have video the same thing but for video and this is what people are now using to do these kinds of forensics like forensic architecture um, has been doing these incredible projects where they then take a bunch of civilian video and footage and photos and they can actually try and recreate and model the density of the amount of tear gas used so there's some absolutely incredible projects up on the forensic architecture site that show you some of this um but you can do that on like a low scale diy version of that um just just with the kind of first techniques i was saying um and then if you get the serial number on the canister then you can find out what kind of weapon it was who manufactured it and that is uh a good way that's that's kind of how we teach sort of civilian or citizen recording um uh, what we call civic forensics. So, okay, I'm obsessed with that. So those are some of the groups who are doing work to help to regulate this. Um, so like top, like top three groups, if you're hearing this and you're just like, I'm mad as shit and I'm going to become a fucking tear gas advocate from now forevermore. Where are the places that people can go to get involved with the folks that are working to regulate this? Yeah, so I would look up Chemical Weapons Research Consortium because uh, they are active um, your local ACLU is probably a good place to start. If you're more on the kind of medical side of things, there's a great group called um, Physicians for Human Rights. And they are actually, it's people who are part of them that have done like the only existing like mega um, reviews we have of all of the inter- uh, you know, different kinds of injuries that there are. So like if you're more like a researcher head or like a science head, then I would say Physicians for Human Rights. If you're more like into the legal stuff, ACLU. If you're like, uh, want to know how like your community group or your advocacy group could get involved, I would try Chemical Weapons Research Consortium. Um, so it really depends like locally where you are, like who who would be the right person to, to contact. And then final question, actually I lied, two more questions, um, but they can be quick. Uh, If you're in a protest, if you are like going to go to a protest and you think you may be exposed to tear gas, what is an expert would you say like people like must bring with them to try to best protect themselves or potentially do like maybe have on hand? Like, I feel like I saw people like pouring milk in their face. Is that like a wives tale? Does it really work? Is there is there any like neutralizer or like some neutralizer fucking grenade with like some anti tear gas liquid in that shit? No, maybe. So, no. Yes. 
So like there's all of these like home, home remedies and whatever. The only scientific study that I've been able to find and like the only times that like occasionally you find like a really avid chemist who like has thought about this. Um, water is is agreed upon by by uh, the scientists as uh, the best solution. They say that these other kinds of things are not so you need to dilute it. Yeah. With the like the water's you gonna dilute. dilute. It the water. They say that things like the reason why milk or coke works is more is over water is psychological. I think there's a lot to be said for activist knowledge as long as like you're not doing something that is causing more harm, but definitely water. Um, taking off the changing clothes as soon as you can. So getting all your clothes or anything that was exposed off of you, uh, obviously any kinds of like masks and head, head coverings. I mean, we've learned so much about mask wearing recently. I was thinking about that though. Is Matt, is, would a mask be, could it potentially keep it more trapped on your face or would you just want to make sure you have changes of masks? So if one mask gets exposed, you could like maybe grab one out of like a bag in your purse and just like change your mask. So you're not keeping it all up on your face. I wouldn't use, like, I wouldn't use, like, a medical, like, the kinds of medical, like, disposable masks we're using for for COVID, like, but, um, you know, there's a reason why people carry bandanas and stuff, because that's, like, an easy way mm. of at least, co- at least partially covering, um, I mean, obviously, like, gas masks are your... And maybe goggles. Your, oh, yeah, gas Yeah, so masks. goggles were that, I mean, that's why, that's why people sometimes wear the full gas mask, but, like, if you're walking around the street with a full gas mask, you're definitely, like, a tar- target for the police as well, so. Oh, you are? They'll, like, they'll try to hit you with it if you have a gas mask well, on. Sometimes so- there's places where masks are banned because, um, you know, in the same way like shields are banned because they say that that's like inciting a riot. So they don't see it as like protective equipment. Rather than see it as protective equipment, they're like, oh, you're starting a riot by like showing up with your gas mask or your, you know, shield. Because you know that we're going to get gas. That's, I hate that so much. Okay, wait. So now it's like Yogini recess. We're at the end of the podcast. Is there anything that you would just be remiss that we did not talk about that you would love to talk about that we need to talk about as it pertains to your research what's next for you what are you doing where can people follow you um is there anything that we didn't talk about that you were just like really excited to talk oh about because that's so many questions um i think i've given shout outs to all the people that i said i would um oh i guess the other two places like big places to go for information on these things is amnesty international as i mentioned before and the omega research foundation which have a whole new um, visual guide to understanding riot control weapons they also to do a lot of following of the companies and like what companies are profiteering. Um, I think that is a really effective campaign method. So it's amazing to see all of this legislation happen. So that would be the other person is like contact your local government and see what they're doing about this and be like, hey, these other um, places are doing this. Um, what is this? I found this amazing website that has like a roundup of all of the different, um, it's from the International Center for for not for profit law and they have like a whole roundup of the places that are doing like tear gas legislation so if you are not on that list and you want to be on the list like contact your representatives um and then i would say yeah the other way into this is through looking at um defund the police and police abolition movements and decolonization movements um so there's lots and lots of local local grassroots organizations doing that work I am not working on tear gas anymore. I am a communications scholar. I'm I'm not a historian of chemical weapons. Um, I got interested in tear gas because of my interest in social change and communication. So I was a 
social movement researcher that then realized that tear gas had been around for like 100 years and was like, oh, what is this? Why is that so? And then that like led to an accidental seven years of my life um, becoming <laughs> a tear gas expert. Um, so I am now on like other communication challenges. So I'm currently working on how comics communicate public health messages about COVID-19. And I, I really like that because it's a really hard thing to, to talk about and all the science and all the misinformation. So I'm looking at kind of creative strategies that people are using um, for that. And then my next big book project is on the fertility industry, uh, where again, like like I really like these things that are really hard for people to talk about. So I'm looking at um, infertility and uh, pro for profit and profiteering and the fertility sector uh, and these kinds of things. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Figtree. I'm like, do I have to change to Professor Figtree now? But it's too many letters. So Dr. Figtree on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's probably the best place. That's like the only thing I'm like remotely active on. <laughs> Anna Feigenbaum, I'm so grateful for your time and for your scholarship and for everything that you're doing, the information that you shared with us. People, follow her. Amazing. Your work's amazing. We're so grateful for you. Thank you for coming on Getting Curious. Uh, I feel like way smarter than I normally do after I, I took so many notes. Thank you so much. And that was amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. The show is so cool. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Anna Feigenbaum. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. And if you enjoyed our show, honey, please introduce a friend. Show them how to navigate their phones over to podcasts uh, and show them how to subscribe. Thank you so much. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JBN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 